0: Well, if you're uh, visiting with us this morning, or maybe you, maybe you weren't here last week, we were a little down last week, the weather kept some people away. We began 2022 by uh, begin with a reminding and refocus of not only who we should be individually, but who we are as a church as we looked at the heartbeat of Harvest Hill. And, and if you missed that, I encourage you to go and look at the podcast. We uh, walked through the life of Paul somewhat and to see what God is telling us to do and to be, again, individually and as a church. Um, What we're doing this morning, as we've done for the last several years, is we're having a theme word to kick off 2022. And that theme word for this year is invest. And while many of us may go into the idea of, you know, money or possessions or materials, that's not really what this uh, series is going to be about per se. Um, This series is not going to be talking about the stock market. It's not going to be talking about 401ks. It's not going to be talking about things of that nature because, you know, I'm just not educated enough to do that. But if you do need help with that, I encourage you to find a financial advisor and maybe they can help you out with that. When we say the word invest, this is what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about investing our time or devoting our time, investing our effort, investing our energy to a particular cause in order to see a godly result in our life. Now, if we had an open question about what is your greatest resource, um, we may have different answers. Some of us may say our family, our job, our money, some possessions, our house, cars, whatever. But I believe the greatest resource we have and all mankind has, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, is our time. And as we look at investing in things in the next four weeks, they're going to take our time. Many of us have probably heard, you know, you've got to make time to do things. The problem with that statement, and I understand the meaning of the statement, is we can't make time. We have to take time. We're all given the same amount of time every single day. We're given 24 hours a day. The only thing we don't know about the time we have is how long we're going to have on this earth before we come into eternity and if you're here this morning you're a child of God, that is going to be a glorious day when you come into His presence and He welcomes you home. If you're here and you have yet to accept Jesus Christ, that is going to be a very scary time. And we want to make sure before you leave this morning, you can be certain of what side of eternity you'll be in. But because we can't make time, we have to take time in order to invest in the things that are worthy of our time. So the things we're going to talk about are going to require us, again, the next four weeks... They're going to require us to take time from something. That may be TV. That may be Facebook browsing. That may be being on the computer. That may be taking time from your lunch time. That may be taking time from your, your time when you normally sleep. These things are going to require us to take time because here's the thing. We're going to find out they're going to impact every aspect of our life. If you're married, the things we're going to talk about in Taking Time for are going to impact your marriage. If you're a parent, it's going to impact how you parent. It's going to impact not only us and our, our close social structures, but it's going to impact people in this world when we take the time for the things that are of value in our relationship with God. And ultimately, it's going to uh, make an impact for all eternity. And so we're going to see why these things are worthy of our time to invest in. Because time is sacred for us this morning, we're going to get right into the text, and we're going to kick off the series by understanding why we should invest in the things that deepen our relationship with God, why we should invest in people that are in our life, why we should invest in stewardship, and why should we invest in the eternal kingdom of God. Again, for the sake of time, let's do it in our passage. We're going to be in the New Testament book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. We'll be in chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 6 here in a moment. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing, led by the Holy Spirit, to write to a group of believers who lived in the city of Rome. And what is unique about this letter is Paul has not met Many of these believers personally, but he's heard of what God is doing. He has not even gone to Rome yet. Yet when you read through this letter, you see that is his heart's desire, that he wants to come to Rome and do ministry and then have the Roman believers help him to go on into Italy so he can continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet when Paul hears, there is in fact a cluster of believers within the city of Rome. he most likely heard through Priscilla and Aquila, which you can read in the book of Acts. And Paul was led by the Spirit to write this letter which reveals the corruption of mankind because of sin. It reveals the redemption for mankind through Jesus Christ. That grace and justification can only be found through faith through faith, and then a response that all believers should have because of the mercies of God that He has given us. And we're going to again be in Romans chapter 5 looking in verse 6 through 11. And our focus this morning is to kick off this series to gain a motivation in taking the time to invest in the things of God, which we're going to look at in the next four weeks. So our our sermon title this morning is God Invested in Us. Let's read the Word of the Lord and we'll walk through this. Beginning in verse 6, the Word of the Lord says, For while we were still weak, Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, I hate jumping into the middle of a chapter. I hate jumping into the middle of a book, because a lot of times you can take things out of context. So we really got to know what Paul has been led to do. We have to keep in mind, this is spirit-driven by Paul. Paul's not just writing a letter to believers. The Spirit laid it upon his heart to write what we have in here and what we now call Scripture in the book of Romans. But the Spirit of God laid upon Paul to lay this groundwork. He begins in chapter 1 by introducing himself. Again, most of the people in Rome, most of the believers, have not met Paul personally. They may have heard of his ministry. They may have heard of what he's done, but they have not met him personally. And then he transitions and deals with why mankind has rejected God and how God responds to the rejection of Him. And he has talked about as a believer, even though we live in a world where all this is going on around and people are rejecting God and denying God, that as a believer, we are not in a place to judge others who do such things. Because Paul points out in chapter 3, we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of God's holiness and His perfection. And then Paul goes into chapter 4 and reveals that the righteousness of God is not about the works that we can produce, it's not about what we do, but it's by faith in Christ alone, His perfect sacrificial death. And to illuminate this truth, Paul turns to Abraham in, in chapter 4. Finally, in chapter 5, in the very beginning, he comes to a place where he begins to teach us about the power of faith in Jesus Christ. He says faith has justified us. Faith gives us peace with God. Faith gives us access to God. Faith gives us a reason to worship God. Faith gives us the ability to worship even in difficult times. And faith gives us hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I think we could do a series just on verses 1 through 5 on the power of faith. But that's not our goal this morning. And Paul is laying the groundwork as he's coming to the point that we come into verse 6. After introducing the power of faith, Paul is led to speak about what happened when we came to faith. And just so we understand, we're all on the same page. uh, When we talk about someone coming to faith, we're talking about someone who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have placed their faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection. They have uh, confessed him as their Lord and Savior and their need for him and his sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins and then given the gift of eternal life. That's what we mean when we say someone has come to faith. And so if you have yet to do this, And what God is telling us in your Word is that you are not living in faith, but you are in fact living in the world. And as I already mentioned before we leave today, that can change for you. In this passage, God is telling us four things in which we once were before we came to faith, and then four things that we now are, that now we are in faith. So if you are counting, that means we got eight things to talk about this morning. But we're going to be diligent with our time. Right? Amen? It's up to me. All right. No, it's not up to me. (laughs) We're going to be diligent with time. So first, we're going to look at the first four things that we were before we came to faith. And three times, this opens with the statement, while we were still. You can find that in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. And the other statement of what we were is implied in verse 7. The first thing that God tells us in verse 6 is that before we placed our faith in Jesus, and if you've yet to place your faith in Jesus, then this is who you currently are. He says that while we were still weak, before we accepted Christ, we were weak. Now, if you're an avid person who likes to share the gospel and evangelize, I do not recommend you begin with that statement by looking at an individual's loss and saying, you're weak. You're going to end the conversation immediately, and you may end up on a viral TikTok video on the Internet of evangelism gone wrong. But God, God is almighty, right? He is all-powerful. He is holy. He is perfect. So God can look at us and say, you're weak. And what he means when he tells us that without Christ or before Christ we were weak, he is saying that we were powerless. Powerless. We were helpless. We were without any ability to do anything in or by ourselves in order to satisfy God. That's what it means when God says, while you were still weak. It's a huge statement to the world that believes that if they live a good life, if they are a good person, or if they do good things, then they should earn eternal life in heaven, that that is where they should go. It should be definitely, but here God in his word wants to give us the truth as hard it is to hear. He wants to say not so fast. All of the good things that you can do in your life are weak and without power. Several years ago, I found myself watching the Strongest Man competition. You ever watch these things? It's usually I watch them when nothing else is on and I'm still paying for cable, so you got to find something to watch. But these guys are massive individuals. I mean, they're pulling semi-trucks or fire trucks, they're tossing these tires like for a long distance, they're grabbing metal and they're bending it with their arms and picking up weights that if, if we attempted, I don't know, maybe you could do it, but if most of us attempted to pick up the weights they were picking up, we, our bodies would just snap in half. We would be crippled for the rest of our lives. And these men are powerful. This is what they live and do their whole life. They eat a certain way so they can be bulky and big. They lift weights all the time so they can go on these competitions. But I also know there are some people here who are, have gotten into CrossFit. And so CrossFit has become this new thing where there's CrossFit competitions. And they're actually on TV every now and then where you see men and women that are exerting so much energy and so much strength in order to complete a task before their, compar- their competitors. And it is impressive to watch these individuals who are so fit and so strong and so mentally tough, to do these activities that I'm like, ugh, just watching it makes me want to take a nap. But when you look at these strong individuals, here's what God says. He says, all the strength you may have, all the intelligence you may have obtained, All the physical ability you may be able to accomplish, all the money you may have stashed away, all the talents that you may be able to produce with your life, all the degrees that you may have worked for and been educated for and have the diplomas on your wall, all the trophies in your trophy cases, all the medals and all that stuff, all of that without Jesus Christ is weak. Because without Christ, all that we accomplish in this world, look in verse 6, is ungodly. The good news there in verse 6 is Christ died for the ungodly. Then we come to verse 7, where God says, we were unrighteous. And this is an implied statement. Paul uses this approach many times throughout his letters. It's called a rhetorical statement. Sometimes Paul does it in such ways where it's a rhetorical question. He, he does that at the beginning of chapter 6, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a rhetorical question. And it's to make you think about what is being presented in that moment. And Paul does this here in verse 7, where he's wanting to bring up an image in the mind of his, of his readers and his audience. And it's basically saying someone may be a good person, but in their goodness, would they be willing to die for another person who isn't as good? See, before Christ, we were all sinfully selfish. But now that we are in Christ, we are called to be sacrificial. Sacrificial. The righteous person there in verse 7 is to speak of someone who is living a a life that believes they have done all that was was required of them in their life. Yet the Bible says that all of our righteous deeds are still unrighteous before a holy God. And God is telling us here in verse 7, there are few who will die for an individual who appears to have it all together. Why? Because we are unrighteous. The good person, there in verse 7. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. That phrase good person is better translated as benefactor. In Paul's society, the client-benefactor relationship was socially binding. So if someone were to loan something... They would be our benefactor, and we would be under obligation to repay or return whatever was loaned to us. We understand this concept even in our world today. When a bank gives us money or loans us money for, to buy a house or to buy a car, the bank is expecting us to pay that back, right? And if we do not pay that back, the bank reminds us that they, in fact, own that house and that car, and they take it from us. Well, in Paul's day, the client would have to go to any means to repay what was borrowed from the benefactor or the good person. This could be to the point of selling one's life into slavery, if it was a private loan, or to join the army, if it was a government loan or a government benefactor. In these incidents, one is laying down their rights and any right they have to their own life. Yet even in these circumstances, God says, this is only a perhaps type of circumstance. It's only a perhaps type of action, meaning that if we were in that situation, we would look for any means to repay our debt, any means to get out of that relationship. You know, that's the same thing people want to do with sin today. Instead of accepting Jesus Christ and living for Jesus Christ, they're tempted to believe they can do something to get out of that sinful category because we don't want to lay down our life. We don't want to pick up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are selfishly sinful and unrighteous. Third thing God says about us before we came to Christ is that we were sinners. Now, the word sin is a word we throw a lot around in church. It's, it's what I call Christianese, a, you know, yeah, like Japanese and English. It's a Christian word, pretty much. In Paul's day, it was not. The word sin is taken from the world of archery in Paul's day. Archery competitions. And so what would happen is you would have archers stand on one side with their bows and arrows, and you have targets somewhere down the line, and they would draw back their bow, and they would shoot the arrow at the target. If you're a hunter, you understand this when you go you know, target practicing. I'm not a hunter, so is that what you still call it, target practicing? Yeah, it'll work. So they would shoot the arrow at the target, And if the target completely missed, meaning it sailed way by or fell short, the judge in the competition would yell out the word, sin. And what it meant for everyone in attendance is they had completely missed the target. They completely missed the mark. So today we use this in basketball terms when we yell out air ball. They completely missed the point of the shot. Or when you're watching a baseball game and, and the announcer says, just a bit outside. They completely missed where the ball was supposed to go, right? That's the word sin. And so before Christ, we were sinners because we completely missed the glory, perfection, and holy of God. It says that before Christ, we completely missed what God had created us to be. So everything we've invested in in our life, everything that we've obtained in our life, everything we did without Christ was a complete train wreck of sin. And so for those who believe to be a good person, if you're here this morning, here's what God is telling you out of love. If you are not found in His Son, Jesus Christ, you completely miss the mark. But the good news is also in verse 8. That God shows his love for us and that we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is playing off what Paul had previously written in verse 7. He's saying, look, you may not die for a good person. You may not die for a righteous person. But Christ died for all who were unrighteous and all who were sinful. The word shows, which is with the ESV, which I read from, can be interpreted as proves or demonstrated. And what God is saying to us is God had nothing to prove to us. Yet in Christ, He proved His love, and He put His love on full display for sinners. And finally, if we aren't feeling worse about ourselves already, God tells us one more thing in verse, six, or verse 10. He says, while we were still enemies of God. Now, to be an enemy, the way Paul is using that word, it means to be hostile. It means to look upon another individual, in this case, to look upon God and wish evil upon him. I think we'd understand it. we have many Chiefs fans. I know not everybody's a Chiefs fan here. We're still praying for Nick's conversion. But anyway, so we have Chiefs fans here. So you take a Chiefs fan, you take a Raiders fan. You put them in arrowhead by one another, and you will find enemies, especially when they get to the fourth quarter and they've indulged in too many beverages, right? It's very animated. This kind of captures what Paul is saying when he says we were enemies of God. What Paul is saying, because what God told him to tell us, is that if you aren't found in Christ, so if you aren't found in Christ here this morning, Even if you believe there is a God, even if you believe that you are a good person, you are only an enemy of God's. That's how he defines you right now, if you are not in Christ. Now, an enemy isn't someone that just aggravates you. It's not someone that's just an annoyance. An enemy, according to Scripture, is someone who is in a completely opposite camp. They stand against. They stand opposed. An enemy doesn't want to live where God is and doesn't desire to be where God is. An enemy is hostile to the things of God. It belittles the things of God. It mocks the cross, and it loves this world more than it loves God. This is how God defines an enemy of his and his word. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world... Makes himself an enemy of God. What's that mean? If we desire more things from this world than we desire from God, we make ourselves hostile to his holiness. Opposed to his righteousness. Mocking his grace and his salvation. And God is telling us in his word, before we came to Christ... We may not have wanted to admit it, but we were opposed to everything God was and is. And just think about that in the big scope. We were opposed to God's grace. We were opposed to God's love. We were opposed to God's forgiveness. Why? Because we didn't think we needed it. We were opposed to God's gift of eternal life. Why? Because we thought we should naturally obtain it. Before Christ, before we believed, because of our sin, we believed in our heart we did not need anything from God. And if we are in Christ this morning, here's what God is letting us understand. This is how the people of the world who love the world are living right now. They don't believe they need anything from God. They don't need to believe they need anything from the church. They don't, need, they don't believe they need to hear about the good news and the gospel, or they need salvation or forgiveness for their sins. This is where people are because they're opposed to everything God is, which then makes them opposed to everything that we are. you're here today and you have to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, this is how God defines you. And he says it in the most loving way the Heavenly Father can. Child, you are weak without Christ. You are unrighteous without Christ. You are a sinner without Christ. And you are an enemy of mine without Christ. But then this is going to bring us to the great news that we call the gospel is that God invested in us through His Son's life, death, and resurrection. Who we were before Christ is to remind us that God did not invest in our lives. God did not save us because of anything we did or could do. God's love for you and me was not motivated because of who we were, but because of who God wanted to create us to be. And in verse 10, it says, Now that we are in Christ, we are justified. We have now been justified by His blood. In chapter 5, Paul was led to show who we were and then to point to this much more. You find it in verse 9. You find it in verse 10 and verse 11. We are much more. This much more is the much more action and much more investment of God that we were undeserving of. He also does it in verse 15 and verse 17 of the same chapter. It's to point to the degree of God's love and the costliness of his gift directed to those who were originally unworthy to receive it. And since now we know who we once were, we can now understand the great investment of God in Christ through to us and now who we are. And to capture this image, Paul uses the word justified. He uses that word frequently within the letter to the Roman believers. It's to capture this image and this action and investment of God through Christ. It's taken from a term of the court of law, where one would stand and they would be found guilty, but then the judge would declare them innocent. I like to think of terms as just as if I never sinned. So God saw me as a sinner, but but now that I'm in Christ, it's like I never sinned in the first place. He removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. He threw them into the depths of the ocean where no one can obtain them. And he looks at me and does not see my sin anymore. But in the context of this passage, it's not just as if I never sinned. It's just as if I was never weak. It was just as if I was never unrighteous, just as if I was never a sinner, just as if I was never an enemy of God. And the word justification holds two key evidence that would happen in the court of law, and Paul uses this It first is the forensic evidence. We are justified by His blood, not by anything we did, but by everything He did, speaking of Jesus Christ. And because we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, then there's the judicial evidence, which is the judgment decision, which we are saved by Him from the wrath of God. So though we were weak, though we were unrighteous, though we were sinners, though we were enemies and opposed to the very nature of God, in Christ and by our faith in Christ alone, God justifies us. He cleans the record. And then He says, we are saved. For those not found in Christ They still live under the wrath of God. The wrath of God phrase speaks as condemnation. It speaks of the ultimate eternal judgment. Well, God will bring all people from all nations before Him, and He will separate them from the righteous and the unrighteous. And He will welcome the righteous home and say, Welcome home, good and faithful servant. And the unrighteous, He will say, I never knew you. And He will kick them into eternal darkness. But we who are in Christ, because of what Christ did for us and God's investment in our lives, we are now saved from the wrath of God by his life, verse 10. By the life of Christ, by his perfect standard of living according to the word of God. And God is telling us in this moment, the greatest fear we can have is not Satan. The greatest fear we can have in our life is not temptation or even sin. The greatest fear we can have in our life is that we are still living under God's wrath. And that's what people are living in if they don't have Christ. They are living in the wrath of God. This brings us to the third thing. We are reconciled. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. One commentator wrote that there are no equivalents to the language of reconciliation in the Hebrew or the Aramaic. The closest term in the Jewish scriptures in what we call the Old Testament are the Hebrew words to cover, to cover over, to pacify or propitiate. We're always tied to what we know as the Day of Atonement out of the book of Leviticus, where God would cover over the sins of the nation of Israel through a sacrifice. The propitiation means to please, to appease, and to satisfy. Whereas the term justification carries a legal term, as God is our judge over all and He has justified us, the word reconciliation carries a personal term in that it is a restoring of relationships. I like to think of it as like being brought back into the harmony of God. And this restoration can only be found in Christ alone. It is our faith in the cross and the resurrection which changes us as it breaks down all barriers between us and an almighty God, and it restores us now into a right standing before him. This reconciliation and justification is based on the work and faithfulness of Jesus Christ and never on what people might do in their attempt to please God by their own works or faithfulness. All this leads to our final verse in verse 11. Verse 11. Now in Christ, we are worshipers. More than that, we also rejoice. That word rejoice means to boast or exult. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. J.R. Starr writes, Christian exultation in God begins with a shamefaced recognition that we have no claim on Him at all that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us and ends with humble confidence that, we, that He will complete the work He has begun. So to exult in God is to rejoice not in our privileges but in His mercies, not in our possession of Him but in His of us. And the major mark of justified believers is joy, especially joy in God Himself. See, God's love for us and His changing of our identity before Him was never about us. It was about Him. And this is why we rejoice and boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is telling us right now, if we are found in Christ, we should have a saintly swagger. We should be living with a salvation strut because we are in Christ and we are in the love of God and because of what God has done for us, How could we ever doubt his love for us? And how could we ever not worship him? And so this passage is going to be our motivation because what God has done, what God has invested in us for eternity, we're going to be challenged in the next several weeks to take the time, make the time to invest in the things of God. That will not only change us, but it will change our relationships with people. Ken Hughes put it like this, we rejoice and worship in a humble confidence of the triumph through Jesus Christ. So we're not to live a life which boasts in ourselves and boasts in our accomplishments and boasts in our possessions, boasts in our kids, boasts in our marriage or our jobs, but we're to live a life which boasts in God, for there is no one like Him. Michael W. Smith sang a song several years back, for some of y'all, you're like, who's Michael W. Smith? Um, just YouTube friends are friends forever, it's a classic. Um, but he sang this song, and I think it's a great song that would go with this series. The lyrics are this, great is the Lord, he is holy and just, and by his power we trust in his love. Great is the Lord, he is faithful and true, and by his mercy he proves he is love. Great is the Lord and worthy of glory. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Great is the Lord, now lift up your voice. Lift up your voice, for great is the Lord. Again, great is the Lord. This passage is our motivation to begin praying, God, prepare my heart for what you're going to lay before me to invest in in my relationship with you in these next couple weeks. But we'd be unjust if we did not end with this question. Who are you? Who are you? Are you still weak? Are you still unrighteous? Are you still a sinner and an enemy of God? Because you're not found in Christ. Or are you in Christ, which means you're justified, you're saved, you're reconciled, and you're now called to worship the one true God with all of your heart and soul and in spirit and truth. Now, if you're unsure where you stand here this morning, or you know what the answer is, and the answer is no. I'm not in Christ. I have not accepted him as my Lord and Savior. I have not confessed my need for him and the forgiveness for my sins. And I've got good news for you. God created you to be with him. This is your sole purpose in life, is to be with God. And it's your sin, your weakness, your, your powerlessness, your hostility towards God, that is separating from you from God. And, and you may try to fix it on your own, Well, I'm here at church, so that's got to be a good start. Yes, that's a great start. But understand you're here at church because God is calling you to Himself. That we can't remove our sin problem, we're too weak. But God knows us about it. That's why he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to live a perfect life which we could not. To die on the cross for our sins and to rise again to show he has power over death and to forgive us our sins. And the Bible says if we believe in that as truth, we place our faith in that, we shall be given eternal life. We admit to God we are sinner. We believe his son died for our sins and then we confess him as our Lord and Savior. And confession is always public. So you may be here and you believe that, but you've never confessed Jesus Christ publicly. And that's something that needs to change this morning. I'm going to be standing down here in a time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to come and just let it be known. I need Jesus, or I have Jesus. I have just not let other people know. Maybe you're here and been so distracted by all these other things that you forget who you are now in Christ. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. We're going to come to a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us. Bridget as well. I'd like to pray over us real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for this incredible gift of grace. Something we could not work for, so that we have nothing to brag in and of ourselves. It is your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. And Lord, if someone's here this morning and they know where they are, that they are not found in you. Well, I pray right now as the enemy tries to attack their heart and persuade their heart just to stay where they are, Lord, that your Spirit would overwhelm them and convict them that they cannot and that their eternal destination would be changed in this moment. This is by something only you can do. It's nothing I have the power or authority to do, only by your Spirit. But let your Spirit work. Let your Spirit do what only it can do. And for my brothers and sisters who are in Christ, Lord, forgive us those times we forget about this incredible life you've now given us. This incredible relationship we get to have with you. Forgive us when we just go through the motions of it and not dive deep into your presence. I thank you, Lord, for what's happening here this morning. I thank you for allowing us again to be in your presence in the throne room of grace. And praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.